Betty Davis battles it out with Jack Warner in London, Edward G. Robinson gets script approval, and Humphrey Bogart almost leaves Hollywood. It's 1937's Kid Galahad. I'm Shannon. Thank you so much for listening to the Vanguard of Hollywood podcast. To say that 1937's Kid Galahad has an all-star cast would be an understatement. Put Edward G. Robinson, Betty Davis, and Humphrey Bogart together, and you know you're in for a film with impressive acting and memorable screen moments. Surprisingly, Robinson, Davis, and Bogart didn't realize just how talented one another were at the time of filming, or how electric their combined acting genius would be on screen. Despite this, Kid Galahad would be a significant film in each of their careers. Edward G. Robinson is Nick Donati, a boxing promoter who's a little rough around the edges, but has a heart of gold. After Nick's boxer throws a fight for gangster-slash-rival boxing promoter Turkey Morgan, Humphrey Bogart, Nick dumps his boxer and begins searching for a new boxer to train, someone who will follow his instructions in the ring and remain loyal. But first, Nick and his girlfriend, Fluff, Betty Davis, decide to blow all their money on a wild party at the hotel where Nick lives. At the party, Nick ends up finding his next boxing protege in Ward Goosenberry, Wayne Morris, the bellhop sent to Nick's room to fix drinks for the partygoers. Ward shows his natural strength when he knocks an unwelcome party guest, Turkey Morgan's boxer Chuck McGraw, to the ground after McGraw unchivalrously pushes Fluff. Nick is impressed with Ward's natural boxing talent, and Fluff, flattered that Ward thinks she's a lady worth fighting for, nicknames him Galahad. Nick decides Ward is his new boxer, the one who will remain loyal to the end. And though Ward has never had any boxing ambitions, he does want to save up some money to buy his own farm. So Ward agrees to the proposition and becomes Nick's boxer. But Turkey Morgan is also impressed with Ward, particularly after he quite easily wins his first fight in the ring. Turkey tries to get Ward to sign with him, but Ward remains loyal to Nick. Turkey's pushiness results in Ward knocking him to the ground. Not the smartest move because of Turkey's mob connections. So Fluff thinks fast, and without telling Nick, takes Ward to the country home of Nick's mother, where no one will think to look for him while Turkey's temper cools down. While staying with Mrs. Donati, Ward falls for Nick's younger sister, Marie, a good girl who Nick has tried to shield from the crooked boxing world he runs in. So Nick is really frustrated with Fluff when he finds out that Ward has been staying with his mom and sister, and quickly brings him back to the city. Ward keeps his feelings for Marie a secret from Nick. Back in training with Nick, Ward continues to grow as a boxer, winning match after match. He's officially christened Kid Galahad in the ring for his clean-cut image after the nickname Fluff gave him. Fluff has officially fallen for Ward by this point, and believes that he returns her feelings until Ward confides to her that he's in love with Marie. He longs to see Marie again, but is afraid of what Nick would do if he found out. 
Heartbroken Fluff does the right thing and tells Ward to go to Marie and profess his love. Meanwhile, Fluff comes clean to Nick about her feelings for Ward and leaves Nick in the boxing life for a job singing in a nightclub. And this is the part of the film where we get to see Betty Davis all glammed up and singing a torchy song. It's awesome. When Marie comes to the city to watch Ward in a big match, she asks to meet Fluff afterwards, and the two go to her nightclub to catch her performance. Though Fluff still has feelings for Ward, she's happy for him and Marie. And though Marie seems to understand that Fluff still cares for Ward, she's grateful to Fluff for encouraging Ward to express his feelings for her. Their pleasant evening abruptly ends when Chuck McGraw, Turkey Morgan's boxer who Ward knocked out at Nick's party, drunkenly starts a fight with him and challenges Ward to an official match. In the heat of the moment, Ward accepts the challenge, and the two agree to fight within the month. Pictures of Ward with Fluff and Marie make it into the next day's papers, and Nick discovers that Ward and Marie have been seeing each other. He's enraged at the relationship, and feeling betrayed, bets against Ward in the big fight with McGraw. Nick plans to take advantage of Ward's trust in him during the match, and will tell him to go all out in each round so that Ward's too exhausted by the end of the fight to beat McGraw. Turkey Morgan hears Nick bet $150,000 against Ward and does the same. But on the day of the match, Marie and Fluff are both spectators, and they realize that Nick is sabotaging Ward out of spite for his relationship with Marie. The girls rush to Nick at ringside and plead with him to accept Ward and Marie's relationship. They ask Nick to give Ward the advice he needs to win the match. Nick's heart is softened, and he guides Ward to victory. But now Nick has to deal with the wrath of Turkey Morgan, who thinks that Nick planned to betray him by switching his game plan all along. Gun in hand, Turkey corners Nick and Ward in the locker room after the fight. Luckily, Nick has a gun too, and he defends Ward from Turkey's bullets. Turkey is fatally wounded by Nick, but it's only a matter of minutes before Nick also dies from Turkey's shots. Before Nick dies, he squares things with Fluff and gives his blessing to Marie and Ward. And that's the sweetly melancholy end to the film. It's no secret that Betty Davis was one spunky gal. Betty was a woman who knew what she wanted and was always willing to fight for it, especially when it came to her career. Kid Galahad may not be the first movie that comes to mind when you think of Betty Davis, but it was significant to her career as one of the first films Betty made after her infamous transatlantic contract dispute with Warner Brothers. Betty's very public trial in English court would, as Betty herself said, make an example of her for any other star who tried to fight the studio system. Betty's unhappiness with the roles Jack Warner assigned her had been brewing for quite some time. Even after Betty won the 1936 Best Actress Oscar for her electrifying performance in the B-picture melodrama Dangerous, she continued getting roles in predominantly second-rate films. When Jack Warner assigned her the role of a female lumberjack in God's Country and the Woman, now doesn't that sound like an appropriate Betty Davis role, it was the last straw for Betty. She understandably called the film tripe and took a three-month unpaid suspension. When Betty and her attorneys met with Jack Warner after the three-month suspension for contract negotiations, Betty was firm in her resolve to have a script approval provision added. And Warner was just as resolved on his side not to give it to her. 
So Betty remained on suspension, willing to wait it out, unpaid, until Warner would grant her the greater artistic control she asked for. While on suspension, Betty was approached by Italian producer Ludvigo Toplitz, who asked her to star in two films he was producing in England. The pay would be extremely generous, and much needed as Betty had gone over three months without a paycheck, at $60,000 a picture, and even better, the films would be artistically fulfilling. Toplitz assured Betty that as the films would be made overseas, she wouldn't be in breach of her contract with Warner Brothers. That is, as long as she could make it to Europe without being served legal papers by Jack Warner, who, aware of Betty's plan, remained firm in his belief that any film work Betty attempted to make outside of Warner Brothers was against her contract. So Betty and her husband Ham clandestinely traveled to England, taking a red-eye flight from Los Angeles to Vancouver, then boarding a train across Canada before finally sailing from Montreal to Britain. It was a harrowing trip, but Betty made it to Greenwich, Scotland without being served. Her relief was short-lived, however, for just before Betty was to begin filming in London, who should arrive in England but Jack Warner himself? Warner hired a barrister and obtained a preliminary injunction that would keep Betty from working on the Toplitz films until Warner's case was heard in the English King's Bench Divisional Court. Though Betty's barrister made compelling arguments in court about the injustice of Betty being forced to play any role Warner assigned her, regardless of how ill-suited or damaging it could be for her career longevity, Mr. Justice Branson ruled in favor of Jack Warner. Artistic grievances aside, Betty had signed a contract with Warner Brothers, and though Betty could always legally choose unpaid suspension over a role Warner assigned her, making any film away from the studio without permission was against the terms of her contract. Justice Branson also ruled that Betty must pay all of Warner's legal fees. Following Justice Branson's ruling, Betty would tell the press that losing the case was, quote, a real sock in the teeth. I'm a bit bewildered. I thought at least that it would have been a partial victory for me and for everybody else with one of these body and soul contracts. I suppose I've been made an example of as a warning to anybody else." Unquote. Though Betty wasn't victorious in court and wasn't granted the script approval she fought for, there's no denying that Jack Warner came away from the whole situation respecting Betty Davis as a woman of her convictions. He gave her a $400 a week pay raise, forgave the last $5,000 of legal fees Justice Branson had ordered her to pay for Warner Brothers, and then assigned her two good roles and two prestigious films, one of which was Kid Galahad. These rewards weren't exactly what Betty had fought for, but it was a step in the right direction on the path that would shortly lead her to superstardom in 1938's Jezebel. Just before filming of Kid Galahad began in January of 1937, Edward G. Robinson was paid a home visit by Jack Warner. Eddie knew exactly what the visit was in regards to. Kid Galahad would be the last film of his current contract, and Warner wanted to negotiate a new one. Similar to Betty Davis, Robinson wanted provisions ensuring greater artistic freedom in his new contract, most specifically script approval. After Warner complained to Eddie about the ingratitude of such stars as Betty, James Cagney, and Olivia de Havilland, who all very publicly fought with him over these issues, Warner agreed to give Eddie, quote, mutually agreeable script approval as part of his new contract. 
With this clause, Robinson could refuse any script or film that Warner proposed to him, and Warner could veto any script or film Eddie proposed. Sounds like a pretty fair compromise, especially for the time. It's noteworthy that script approval, this freedom Betty Davis fought so hard and publicly for, only to come out at great financial expense, the loser just months before, was almost given to Edward G. Robinson on a silver platter. Robinson did have to talk Jack Warner into this idea of mutual script approval, but Warner agreed to it without much fanfare. So why did Warner give Eddie the script approval he so vehemently fought not to give other stars like Betty? The surface argument would be that Robinson easily got the respect and freedom in his contract that eluded Betty Davis simply because he was a man. While that may be partly true, it's an immature conclusion. Jack Warner also fought these bitter battles of artistic integrity and script approval with male stars, such as James Cagney, one of Warner Brothers' biggest stars at the time. Jack Warner's difficult side was most definitely not exclusively reserved for his female stars. There's no doubt that Robinson's Broadway career pre-Hollywood helped his contract negotiations at Warner Brothers. Eddie was established on the stage before he signed his first contract with the studio in 1930, and his treatment at Warner's always benefited from the fact that he came to Hollywood with an impressive stage resume. There was also a unique mutual respect between Robinson and Warner. As Jack Warner himself told Eddie, he recognized the fact that Eddie was a private man who kept any disagreements the two men had over the years out of the press. Warner appreciated Eddie's discretion and rewarded him with the mutually agreeable script approval provision in his contract. So Betty Davis and Edward G. Robinson clearly had very different degrees of stardom and respect at Warner Brothers by the time Kid Galahad went into production. What about Humphrey Bogart? Well, Bogey had yet to make his mark in films. Or perhaps it's more accurate to say that his stellar film performances had yet to be appreciated by his studio or the public. By 1937, Humphrey Bogart was still not a box office name. And with the notable exception of his performance in The Petrified Forest from 1936, more often than not, Bogart found himself playing supporting roles to the other male stars at Warner Brothers, such as Robinson and Cagney, who enjoyed greater success and seniority at the studio. How would Bogart ever get the chance to show he was more than capable of carrying a film when the leading roles were always offered to the bigger-name actors first? Bogey eventually got the chance to show what he could do in 1941 with his iconic performances in High Sierra and the Maltese Falcon, becoming one of the most respected superstars in Hollywood. But at the time of Kid Galahad, Humphrey Bogart was actually considering leaving Hollywood to go back to New York in the stage. And can you blame him? In Kid Galahad, Bogart got fourth billing, behind Robinson, Davis, and Wayne Morris. Just to put Bogey's position at Warner Brothers into perspective, for Kid Galahad, Robinson earned a whopping $50,000, Betty Davis a respectable $18,500, and Bogey a paltry $3,185. Yeah, no wonder Bogart debated leaving Hollywood. But thank heavens he didn't. Betty Davis and Edward G. Robinson may seem like an interesting film pairing, but in Kid Galahad, it works. These two stars, who made careers out of predominantly playing hard-boiled characters, 
somehow managed to soften each other in the film. Even though in my book, Robinson and Betty were an effective screen team, and undoubtedly two of the great actors of their generation, each did not recognize the other's talents. In fact, when Eddie discovered that Betty would be cast opposite him in Kid Galahad, he frankly didn't think she was capable of effectively playing the role. As Eddie said of Betty Davis in his autobiography, quote, It was impossible for her to play a waif because there was too much steel in her. It was absurd for her to play a creature over whom men swooned because there was nothing about her to make you swoon. She was far too independent and self-assured to be a convincing whore, though she brilliantly played some unconvincing ones. The fact is, she was not an ingenue or a comedian or an inconstant wife when those were the roles reserved for actresses." Unquote. Eddie's words may sound a little harsh, but Betty had some hurtful things to say about Robinson, who she would call mushmouth behind his back. Betty also said of working with Eddie that, quote, all of us girls at Warner's hated kissing his ugly purple lips, unquote. Now that's just cruel. Betty would also make a point of praising Paul Muni, Eddie's only true competitor at Warner Brothers, and probably the actor he got along least with at the time, which got on Robinson's nerves enough that he was unwilling to contribute to Betty's canteen for British immigrants when she asked him. It would be one of the few times Eddie refused to donate to a cause related to the war effort, and it's hard to believe his refusal was not based on his personal feelings for Betty. Hal Wallace, the producer who worked closely with Robinson and Davis during their years at Warner Brothers, would lament in his autobiography over the failure of these two stars to appreciate each other. As Wallace says, quote, We co-starred Eddie with Betty Davis in Kid Galahad. After the first day's work, he said to me, this Davis girl, she's hopeless. She's an amateur. Totally out of place in this picture. I assured him that she'd give a fine performance, but he didn't warm to her, nor she to him. Neither recognized the other's talent. Unquote. Wallace may have been right that Robinson and Davis didn't respect each other's talent during filming, but in his autobiography, Eddie shares that he did come to appreciate the Davis in time. Quote, when I played with her in Kid Galahad, I did not admire Betty Davis. I admire her now." Unquote. In his autobiography, Edward G. Robinson makes an incredibly fascinating observation about himself and five-time co-star Humphrey Bogart. It seems that often enough in their film pairings, one of, or both Eddie and Bogie, would end up dead by the end of the film. And the question of who would die first was always answered by who the bigger star at the time was. In Robinson's words, quote, Bogey and I carried on a charade in each picture. Almost inevitably, both of us would get killed at the end of the films in which we worked together. The charade followed a precise pattern. When I was the reigning star, Bogey would be slain first and I'd live another reel before I got it. And as the years passed and Bogey became the reigning star, and I was demoted to character roles, I'd get the bullet first and Bogey would live out another reel. Check that one out, film historians." Unquote. I absolutely love Eddie telling us film buffs to check out his observation, and Kid Galahad is a great example of what he's talking about. Robinson was hands down the bigger star at the time, and as such, Bogart dies first in the film, and is then relegated to the back of the screen, 
while Robinson lives on a few more minutes and gets a rather saintly death scene with his girlfriend tearing up at his side. Kid Galahad was another successful film for Edward G. Robinson, earning $1.5 million at the box office, proof that Eddie didn't have to play a gangster to bring audiences into theaters. Robinson's respected standing at the studio was firmly in place, and with that new contract he negotiated with Jack Warner just before Kid Galahad, also came a raise. As Eddie says in his autobiography, quote, The new Warner contract was so arranged that I would have a certain degree of financial probity. Any sane man with a family to support would have done the sensible thing, save the money, and look forward to a nice old age on a country estate with time for golf, tennis, and no pressure to make a buck. Such an idea never entered my mind." Unquote. The lesson from Eddie's father to live beyond his means to inspire hard work is so apparent to me in Eddie's words, despite his tongue-in-cheek tone. Robinson and his wife Gladys knew exactly what they'd do with their increased earnings. Tear down the badminton court on their Beverly Hills property and build a gallery to house their growing art collection. Renowned architect Sam Marks was brought in to design the gallery. Hints of Gladys's mental illness that would spell the end of the Robinson marriage nearly two decades later were first apparent to Eddie at this time, when the stress of having their initial building plans disapproved by the Beverly Hills City Council and Zoning Department plunged Gladys into a severe depression, a melancholy out of all proportion to the problem, as Eddie would recount in his autobiography. But the Robinsons finally had a beautiful place to display their impressive art collection, which now included Suzanne's Black Clock, the piece that Eddie would say he, quote, wanted more than any other in the world, unquote. And on the career front, Eddie was taking full advantage of his contractual right to turn down film roles he was not interested in. Most of the best roles of his career were ahead, and it seemed Eddie knew it. And that's it for Kid Galahad. For delicious recipes and all things classic Hollywood, be sure to visit my website, macaronsandmimi.com. Don't forget to tune in to Turner Classic Movies for the Robinson films that will play Thursdays all this month, and be sure to join me next week on Vanguard of Hollywood for one of Eddie's personal favorites, a Robinson film that was so controversial at the time, Eddie received death threats during production. It's 1939's Confessions of a Nazi Spy.